Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Kimberly Motley, author of the book Lawless, which recounts her unrelenting fight for justice in one of the world's most dangerous places. This is an extraordinary story of a U.S. woman who became the first foreign lawyer to practice in Afghanistan. The book is a memoir, but it also has the feel of a page-turning suspense novel where Kimberly Motley faces one unique, difficult, and dangerous legal case after another. Through sheer force of personality, ingenuity, and perseverance, Kimberly's legal work swiftly morphed into a personal mission to bring justness to the defenseless and voiceless. We start the show with Kimberly reading a section from her book about one of her clients named Irene, where she shows us how Irene wound up with a severe prison sentence and explains when women go to prison in Afghanistan, their children often go with them. Often in Afghanistan, if a woman goes to prison, her daughters go with her, while in many cases, sons are allowed to go home with their fathers. Aisha wasn't alone. There were babies and kids everywhere. I asked Irene if we could go into her cell to talk more privately. I took a seat on the edge of her bed, and she began to translate for the other women in the cell, a Thai woman and an Afghan. After I explained that I was interested in hearing their stories, The women appeared to have even less idea than the men about how things worked in the legal system. Many were used to being confined in their homes for nearly 24 hours every day prior to their detention in prison. In court, women were treated like children. They were ignored, even more so than the men, and they were often chastised when they dared to speak. In some instances, when women would try to defend themselves in court, it appeared as if they were given an even harsher sentence. Most of the women had never heard of and didn't even know what a defense lawyer was. The only lawyers they were familiar with were the prosecutors who were bringing cases against them. Not one had had any legal defense in court, and instead of being presumed innocent, they were treated as though they were guilty from the start. There's no programming in Afghan prisons either. There's nothing to do, no classes, so most of the time these women are sitting in their cells all day getting on each other's nerves. I was a new entertainment. And for hours, Irene translated for me so I could hear the women's stories. With children running along the halls, the place had an eerie sense of normality. And yet nearly every woman I met communicated how horrendously battered she had been at some point in her life. The vast majority had been charged with what are called moral crimes in Afghanistan, usually running away and or adultery. Finally, it was Irene's turn to tell me her story. 
She explained that she was in prison because she'd been found guilty of operating as a drug mule. She began to fiddle nervously with her hands and struggled to maintain eye contact. Eventually, she reached the part where she detailed how exactly she landed herself in jail. Three years prior, Irene had been arrested in a hotel room in Kabul with a group of other Africans. Like many of the foreign women at the prison, she told me that she thought she had come to Afghanistan for a legitimate job, in her case as a cleaner, but instead found herself working as a low-level drug mule. As I understood, she was hired by a construction company run by an Australian man. Once she came to Afghanistan, she described how he took her and her daughter's passports, forcing her to travel the country to traffic heroin until eventually she made her way to Kabul, where someone else would then fly out with it. One afternoon, she and her roommates had been busted by the Afghan cops. Without legal representation, she had been tried and sentenced, the maximum sentence, 20 years with no hope of reprieve. Kimberly Motley has earned the reputation as one of the world's most respected and successful international lawyers. The former Mrs. Wisconsin America 2004 is a force to be reckoned with. Armed with an unwavering determination and a passion for justice, Motley is the first and only foreign lawyer to ever litigate in Afghanistan's courts. In 2008, she traveled to Afghanistan and shortly thereafter became the first foreigner and still only foreigner to litigate in Afghanistan's courts, representing a vast array of clients in civil, commercial, and criminal courts. She's been practicing law in Afghanistan for over 10 years and her practice has grown to where she represents people on almost every continent. Her many success stories are recounted in her book, Lawless, along with the challenges she faced along the way. She was the first attorney to be given the title of Honorary Legal Representative to Her Majesty's Ambassador and the British Embassy in Afghanistan, a title that she has maintained under five UK ambassadors and continues to maintain. And she's represented the EU, Italian, Canadian, German, Australian, and French Embassy. She's also provided legal representation to many successful international initiatives in Afghanistan in the medical, music, education, and telecommunication fields. More details about her work can be found in the show notes. Her expert legal work has earned international attention with segments on BBC, CNN, NBC, as well as profiles in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, London Times, the Washington Post, among others. In 2014, Richard Branson named her as one of the 14 most inspirational people. She gave a TED Talk with over a million views entitled, How I Defend the Rule of Law, that outlined some of her work. An award-winning international documentary highlighting her work entitled Motley's Law was released in 2015. Forever the DJ, Motley is also developing a comic book about a superhero team of lawyers and investigators who travel around the world fighting cases. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Landis. Yeah, so congratulations on your career and on your book, Lawless. Thank you. 
I have to say, this is not uh, your grandfather's law practice, right? I mean, <laughs> this is uh, this is not what normal lawyers do. I'm not saying you're not normal right. necessarily, but uh, it is I'm not kind normal. of an, it's okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> clearly get that out of the way. It is an atypical law practice, right? I mean, you, your office is here in Charlotte, but you're all over the world. That's correct. I feel like sometimes my office is on an airplane. Hmm. But not in these times. We're recording this in uh, April. We're sheltering in place. So I suppose there are not too many airplane trips for you at the moment. Oh, absolutely not. I'm, I'm following um, instructions and I'm sheltering in place also. Yeah. How do you practice an international law practice while you're sheltering in place? Well, it's, it's a little challenging. And to be honest, the way that my law practice runs, um, I'm always, I always have cases in various countries at any given time. So I'm used to, frankly, working remotely a lot, um, which is beneficial. So it isn't a huge, huge um, issue in that regard. However, it's always nice to be there in person with, with clients. Um, one benefit I can say is, as we are sheltering in place, there's a lot of courts that are shut down. And mm-hmm. so that allows for me to be here and, and sit here. And frankly, even if the courts were opened up in many jurisdictions, I still would ask for delays. Yeah. Did you ever think that when you left law school that your career would turn out to be what it did? No, I didn't. And, and honestly, I didn't realize how unusual it is, to be honest, until I was writing my book and frankly reading it out loud. <laughs> um it's just my life. You know what I mean? I, I never envisioned when I went to law school that I would be an international lawyer. I mean, I, I didn't even have a passport till I went to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely wasn't, I knew I'd be a litigator. I knew I'd be a trial attorney, but I didn't think I'd be a trial attorney in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you got from there to here. You grew up in Milwaukee. You said, uh, you grew up in the projects and, uh, the uh, daughter of a Korean mother and an African-American military father. So what was that like growing up in Milwaukee? And uh, I think you said there wasn't much of an option about not going to college, given your your parents, right? right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Milwaukee is very interesting. And, and, you know, one thing that was really cool, I think, is that I grew up in a household with very, very strict parents. That was not cool. But, mm. uh, and I went to yeah. primarily Catholic schools from kindergarten through eighth grade. So my environment was very multicultural and I didn't even realize it till when I grew up. Like my mother was the only Korean person in our neighborhood. It was largely a black neighborhood. Um, I went to Catholic schools. It was all white schools that I went to. And, um, you know, I was always just used to without realizing it moving amongst different people in Mm. different areas of life. Um, And it just was very natural. I think that my mother being an immigrant was also really interesting. Um, When she came to the United States, uh, her and I would sit and watch Sesame Street together. And that's how she learned English. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember that because we would just sit there. She had, she gave birth to my brother in in Seoul, but uh, you know, she had me in the U S and I remember growing up with her, how she wasn't super comfortable with her English. So I would often be the one speaking on her behalf. Mm. But it wasn't until you were 20 and pregnant that you got serious about school. You you then got a paralegal degree and then you got a Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice. And 
And then you went to graduate school and, and law school at two different universities at the same time. I mean, are you, what's going on? <laughs> what, what, yeah. What, yeah. I just wanted options, I guess. You know, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, when I went to school to be a paralegal and I did that because like you said, I was pregnant at the time and I knew I wanted to get some type of college degree just in case you never know how life works. Right. And so right. I wanted to have something. And so I really enjoyed that. And I decided to go get my bachelor's degree in criminal justice because that was a field that always interested me. But I knew I did not want to be a law enforcement officer, but I, but I wasn't sure if, and that worked out well. And then from there, you know, I, I wasn't convinced that I wanted to be a lawyer, frankly. I thought maybe I could become a professor. So that's why I decided to get my master's degree in criminal justice just in case I want to get a PhD. But then, you know, I got accepted to law school. So I said, okay, I'll do that too. And so um, it was very, I don't know, yeah. I, I, I was doing what I felt at the time. Well, I, 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 I think professor could be on your bucket list at some point when you're tired of you know, flying around the world. You can you can teach international law somewhere. Yeah. somewhere. Uh, but you started work uh, in the public defender's office in, in Milwaukee, and uh, you described what I sort of envisioned. I, I did not do that. I, I think I was familiar with it when I was an intern, you know, seeing how that works. But I ended up doing civil law most of my career. And uh, But the public defender's office in Milwaukee um, – you had a lot of cases on your plate, right? You were really right. working hard. Each, each, I think you said, had 200 to 250 clients a year with criminal charges against them. And you kind of burn out on that a little bit, right? I mean, after a while. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're, I mean, public defenders, they really are amazing people. And I was blessed to have been, have worked in the public defender's office. I mean, it gave me my training that I needed to become, to be the lawyer that I am today, mm. but it is grinding work. It is grueling work. It is being in court all day, every day, often with clients that can be difficult. A lot of clients are not, are very, are great. Right. Um, but working a lot of very challenging cases under very, very, um, confined time restraints. Right. And and so that that helped me, I think. So then comes an opportunity. Um, you're kind of figuring out what maybe your next path is going to be. And you kind of I don't know if it came an email or an advertisement or something, an opportunity maybe to go work for the U.S. Justice Sector Support Program in Afghanistan. You said, what the hell is that? Right. And and you know, <laughs> but it, but they but the, but it came with big money, uh, a 12 month contract. And you said, why not? Is right. That kind of, is that kind of how it, it happened? I mean, how it happened is I went to lunch with a colleague of mine um, and we went to lunch and she told me about her friend that was working in Afghanistan to help build the rule of law system within the country. And he was at that time training prosecutors. And so I, at that point in time, I'd worked in the public defender's office for about five years. And I knew, frankly, I wasn't going to be there long. You know, I enjoyed it and everything, blah, blah, blah. But I knew I wasn't going to make it a career. And also, frankly, I knew we wanted to move to North Carolina. And so I said, well, can you give me his email? She did. I blindly contacted him and I said, hey, what you're doing sounds cool. I went to lunch with Megan, our mutual friend. Here's my CV if you have an, an opening. And I never looked up the job, never looked up yeah. the website, nothing. Didn't and know what you're getting into either, did you? I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. And oh, a couple weeks later, I just got a call while I was in the office from Afghanistan. 
Yeah. And then you, you kind of go to this sort of CIA like, you know, boot camp, I guess, to get trained up. And then you get on a plane and uh, you leave your family behind and you land in Afghanistan and you weren't in Kansas anymore, were you, Dorothy? No, I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was very different. What, <laughs> yeah. what was it? What was it? What was it like when you landed? What, what was your first impression? Well, you know, it's everything. It's I'm excited. I'm scared. I'm sad. You know, because I'm away from my family. It was just everything. You just don't know what to expect. And I had not been a well-traveled person at that point in time. I traveled throughout the U.S., of course, but not internationally. And so it's a real shock to your system. And I think. I remember when we went, departed from the plane onto a bus, how the bus window was like, had holes all in it. And I immediately thought it was from bullet bullet holes. And so that has always stuck out in my mind. Um, It's a very, but also the beautiful mountains that Mm -hmm. were um, in the landscape um, behind the airport was also amazing. And when we get the bus, take the bus to the um, the actual airport itself, it's just chaos. It's just mm-hmm. chaos. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, burkas. I'd never seen a burqa in person. That is very, was very scary for me because you don't really know what's under it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sad. Uh, you see people just bag. There's no system. You know, it's like your bags are just everywhere and everyone's just like running to their bags. It's just complete. Chaos. Sounds like a typical airport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, Kimberly, having read your book and seen all the high profile cases that you've taken on, some of which we're going to talk about in today's episode. So I have this question. What what drives you to do what you do? You know, I have met so many amazing people along the way, um, many of whom are my clients or have become my clients. And that's really what drives me. There's so many people I've met that are just in need of representation. Not not even good, just someone to listen to their to them and to be a voice for them. And I've seen so many people being railroaded in so many legal systems. It almost frankly from my opinion would have been irresponsible for me not to get involved. Mm. All right, so before we dive into some of these cases, which are very interesting, I have to take a quick diversion here. You were Mrs. Wisconsin in 2004, not something I expected to see, and your your resume uh, of a kick-ass take-names trial lawyer with international law practice, so tell us how that came about. <laughs> you know, it's uh, funny. I did that. <laughs> I have never was in a beauty pageant, but my best friend dared me <laughs> to do it. Okay. I double-dare so, double, double you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, I did it frankly, as a joke, because I thought it would be funny. And basically, to enter the pageant, there's a swimsuit portion, there's an interview portion, and there's an evening gown portion. So there's no talent portion. Otherwise, I would not have been able to enter it. And so literally, all you need is a swimsuit, a business suit, and an evening gown. So I had like my graduation dress, my (laughs) business suit I wear to work, and I have a swimsuit. And so you know, it's, it was interesting because I met a lot of amazing women that were part of it that, you know, they try to intimidate you and they're like, they'll come up to you and be like, yeah, I was Miss Cutie Pie, you know, 1993. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a whole thing that I wasn't aware of. And so 
when I won Mrs. Wisconsin, it kind of made it funnier, you know, <laughs> but I was glad I did. And yeah. um, I went to Mrs. America, competed, and I met some really amazing women, some of whom I'm still in contact with today. Um, a lot of really strong women. It was a sort of area that I wasn't familiar with, the pageant world, um, but it was really, really interesting. Okay, so one more diversion, and then we're going to get in here. In your bio, I said, Forever the DJ, Motley is also developing a comic book about a superhero team of lawyers and investigators who travel around the world fighting. That sounds like a great, great book. Are you, are you working on that? Yeah. <laughs> this is a way to entertain, educate people, people about the law, and also inform people about different cultures. So the idea is that, like you said, this is a superhero team of lawyers and investigators that travel around the world fighting cases. So wherever we go, this inaugural issue, for instance, is in North Korea. Wherever we go, we footnote the laws within that jurisdiction into the comic book. And so the idea is that we'll get into some deep issues, like we'll get into human trafficking, child soldiers. We might do a child soldier case in, in the DRC. We'll do a human trafficking case in Atlanta. You know, we might do a uh, rape case in Dubai. You know, so we'll get into really heavy issues in the comic book and show how the lawyers and investigators who have reasonable superpowers, how they <laughs> okay. tackle those issues. <laughs> okay. What, what superpower did you give to the lawyers? Well, I have, um, and I named them after my kids. So I have um, one of the lawyers is Soul, and my son's name is Soul. So his superpower is that he's a super litigator. He um, has a gift of gab, but, um, and so he wins all these cases. But his weaknesses, but also, so he'll take clients, all types of clients. So he'll represent also a lot of bad guys, right? Mm -hmm. And so he'll win these cases, but his weaknesses, he'll steal your soul. So he'll win your case, but you might die a horrible death. So <laughs> that's part. And but so he's okay. essentially like a judge, jury, and executioner. I so wanted this, them to have good side and a dark side. This is an adult adult comic book. I can see that. Okay, quickly, one thing you use the title of the disruptors. Uh, why not the like resolvers or the winners or the achievers or why the disruptors? <laughs> well, the disruptors title is actually inspired by the first trial case that I witnessed in Afghanistan. When I first went to Afghanistan, I thought it was very important for me to understand and learn the legal system. And so one way that I decided to do that was to view trials. And so I went to the National Security Court in, in Kabul, which is basically the court where presumably they're supposed to bring all the terrorists through. And it's the court that's heavily funded by the U.S. and the U.K. governments. So I'm sitting there and I'm really excited and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was the first foreigner to ever witness a trial in that courtroom, which is absolutely ridiculous because we've been funding that court in two, since 2001 and I viewed this trial in 2008. And so I'm sitting there and as I'm sitting there, there's three judges. I'm the only female, of course, the three judges. There's uh you know, police in the courtroom and my translators, I have two tra male translators with me and I have my security team also with me. So there's a knock on the door and the police officer asks if court can begin and they say, fine. So when they begin court, they walk this guy in and his hands and his feet are shackled together and he has a bag over his head and he looked more like a hostage than a defendant. And so he's standing there and they rip the bag off his head ceremoniously, and that's what begins court. And so the prosecutor then stands up and he reads the indictment. 
And basing the indictment, he reads that this guy was a driver of a taxi cab, was a taxi driver, and basically that the police stopped his car in an area where terrorists are known to be. And when they stopped this car, there were five or six passengers in the car. Now, to understand how taxis run, they more they run similar to how Uber pools run. And so when the police stopped the car, they confiscated guns and cell phones that were in the car. There was no evidence that there were any phone numbers of terrorists in the car. There was no evidence that there were any terrorists in the car. And based on them stopping the car and finding guns and cell phones, which everyone has in Kabul, they arrested this guy and charged him with being a terrorist. So that's what the prosecutor read and he sat down and this guy was being charged with being a terrorist. And so after he was done, the judge looks at the guy and he says, um, do you have anything to say? Now, this guy had no attorney that was representing him and he was clearly shaking. And so the first thing he says is, I'm not a terrorist. I'm a taxi driver. If I'm a terrorist, bring the person before me that accuses me of being a terrorist. Unbeknownst to him, invoking his right to confrontation, which is a right he has, according to Afghan law. And the judges uh, then held up a piece of paper and they said, you sign this document. And this guy was illiterate. And the way people sign their literate is they put their thumbprint. And the guy says, I didn't sign that. He said, I have no idea what that says. I can't read and write, you know. So, and he said, look, they beat me. They made me sign this. So he's trying to show his bruises on his arms and he's lifting his shirt to show like that he was, you know, he was beaten for that confession. And so then the judges say something to him to the effect of, well, why didn't you, why didn't you ask the doctors to, to see you if you were beaten? And the guy, like, it's, I, I don't mean to laugh, but the guy, this is the first time the guy just looks at me and we look at each other and he just rolls his eyes. And I, I just, and I was like, and it was yeah. ridiculous. And so yeah. the guy kept complaining about being beaten up and the judges were getting more and more sort of impatient with him, especially since I was sitting in the room. And so one of the judges, the main judge, he hits his hand on the table and he goes, enough. And he goes, don't disrupt me. Mm, okay. Don't disrupt me. And I always remember that. And with that, anything that this guy had to say was done. His defense was over. Five minutes later, he was found guilty of being a terrorist, giving eight years in prison, labeled terrorist for life. And that right. is why this is called the disruptors. And that's why you became a disruptor. Okay, good. <laughs> that's a great story. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's let's jump back into Irene for a second. We started the show with you reading uh, about her uh, situation, and um, just just to finish that story a little bit, uh, she was a bit naive. She became a victim, and she got uh, twenty years with no chance for reprieve. It was your first case that you won in Afghanistan. How did you turn her 20-year sentence into her getting out of prison? Well, basically, what I did is I talked to her and I talked to the Supreme Court judges about the possibility of her providing information that could possibly get her out of prison. Now, the reason why that's important is because everybody, every foreigner that comes to Afghanistan, you're required to get a visa and you're sponsored by somebody. No one had looked into who provided her visa and who was sponsoring her, which is really important because that, frankly, is the drug dealers that I think you really want. 
So I went to the UN. Um, there's a mission within the UN called UNODC, and they're supposed to deal with drug eradication in Afghanistan. And so they're always sort of interested in how the drug trade works and interested on who, in who's involved. And so I talked to them and they said they'd be very, very interested in getting any information from Irene. So essentially, I brokered a deal where if she provided information, then she could possibly be released. And so Irene did provide the information that the UN wanted. The UN wrote a letter on her behalf saying that she did provide this information. And then I went to court and I went and talked to the Supreme Court judges about this and about the information that she had providing, hoping that that would be enough to satisfy her sentence at that point in time. And I thought it was, frankly, a meeting and a conversation. What I didn't realize then is I actually, that was my first court trial in Afghanistan. And so based on our trial and me arguing that to them, they agreed and they released her. And so I won my first trial. So that's interesting because you don't, you wouldn't even think, I saw this a lot during the book and, and you wouldn't think in the U.S. legal system of just going to a judge's office on your own or showing up to argue your client's case and then listening to you and saying, okay, well, fine, we'll, we'll reduce this or we'll reduce that. It That's just not the way due process works in the U.S. It seems almost uh, like the system is designed to be filled, uh, you know, with some greed and corruption. But on the other hand, you were able to use it to the advantage of your clients who were wrongly convicted in many cases to, to find them a, a way forward. Right, exactly. I mean, Afghanistan is an inquisitorial system versus what we have in the U.S., which is adversarial, meaning that our system is one side is against the other. And you're correct. In our system, you can't just be a defense attorney independently talking what we call pro se communications with a judge. If you talk to the judge, you have to let the prosecutors know so that they can either be there or that they're aware of those conversations. Whereas in Afghanistan, as an inquisitorial system, the idea is that the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, and the judges are all supposed to work together to come to the truth of what happened. And so that you are allowed to go and independently talk to judges within that system, because I, in theory, you're all supposed to be working together to find out what the tr what truthfully happened within a situation. It sounds a bit like what uh, they're trying to launch here in the U.S., I know North Carolina's got a, working something called collaborative law, <clears throat> where the where the lawyers work together collaboratively uh, to try to achieve a solution as opposed to adversarially. All right, so that's interesting. You win your first case, and you don't even have to. They don't even ring it into to start the session. The bailiff doesn't stand up and say, "Oh yes, oh yes." You just show up and talk to the judge, and and you win your case. Um, all right, let's talk about another one real quick before the break. Uh, a fellow named Bill Shaw. This is the case you say that changed everything for you. Um, to set up this read, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Bill. He was accused of paying a bribe. The Afghans confiscated his vehicle. He was tasked with getting it back because he worked for a security contractor. He paid the fine, but he didn't get a receipt. He kept asking for a receipt, and he was just, I suppose, too pesky and annoying to the Afghans. So they accused him of actually paying a bribe, kept the money, and uh, he got uh, he, he was sent to, pr to, to prison. You know, Bill Shaw was my first big breakout case, I would say. And so I had been coming at that point in time. I had been in Afghanistan for a little over a year. And I had all this trial and motion practice experience in the U.S. So in the first court, I went to court and I had exhibits where I had, you know, there you have to prove 
the, the moral, material, and legal elements in order to find somebody guilty. Here we have the mens rea, actus rea, but that they have the moral, legal, um, and material elements. And I had written on these big sort of uh, boards, you know, how the evidence wasn't there and how these elements weren't met. And I, you know, litigated the crap out of that case. And I had great arguments and I stuck to Afghan law. And, you know, the prosecutor barely said anything, just like the prosecutor in the disruptor um, case, barely said anything, really just read the indictment. And at the end of it all, Bill was found guilty. And I was devastated. You know, this Bill Shaw is a very honorable person. He was a former British soldier. He has an MBE, which is a high honor award that the, the British Queen gives to um, select people. Um, so he had a high standing within the, Brit the UK society. And so to think about losing that case and that your client, who is this British soldier, soldier is now going to be detained within an Afghan prison surrounded by insurgents, you know, it, what I had, what I felt meant nothing compared to how he felt. And it was interesting because when I represented him, when I went to that first court hearing, he came in and said, we're going to lose. Like right away, that was the first thing he said. He was facing bribery charges for two to eight years in prison. Once you're found guilty, they give you the sentence right away, which is he was given two years. And they make the person sign that document as though they agree with it. And so I remember saying, how could you find him guilty? Like almost yelling at the judges. And they were like, we gave him two years. Like to them, that was a right. win because right. they never give people the minimum. And I was like, and they said to me, we gave him the minimum. And I said, no, the minimum is not guilty. Yeah. And so it, it just it wasn't even something that, that crossed our mind. So after that court hearing, I remember the Afghan judges and the prosecutors, they were on all the Afghan television networks and basically bragging about how they won and found this, uh, this foreigner guilty of bribery because Afghanistan is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So by them coming out there and saying this publicly, it made it seem like this shows that this court is not corrupt because surely these foreigners would have wanted to pay a bribe and we were above that. And so after that hearing, I went to go visit Bill the next day in jail and I was really, really deflated. But he was like really happy because he thought he was going to get the eight years. So to him, that two years was a win. And so I talked to him about, you know, I can just quit. We can get another lawyer. You know, I'm so sorry. I was very apologetic. And he was so sweet. And he said, I don't want another lawyer. And he explained to me how he knew he was going to lose. He knew he thought he was going to get eight years. Two years was an amazing sentence to get. And that, you know, he he wants me to continue to represent him. And so I said, OK, well, let's appeal this and let's go to the second court. And so. In my first court hearing, I was very American, very the, the very much the um, adversarial litigator. But in between first court and second court, which second court is essentially an appellate court, is essentially doing the trial over. I completely changed my tactics. Between that time, I went to I went to the streets and learned of street law in Afghanistan, and I went to the jerkas, which is part of their informal justice system. I met with a lot of religious leaders and I realized that in order to frankly practice law, I need to mix in some Islamic law, which is something I wasn't comfortable with with the first court. But in second court, I knew 
that I needed to really understand and research the Holy Quran and yeah, make that part of my arguments. And you mixed in something else that's going to come, become pretty apparent when you do your reading in just a second here, a bit of an attitude and sort of talking down to the other lawyer, which is also not something that, that you do in the U.S. system. You talk to the court, you don't talk to the other lawyer. But let's, let's read that and then get a feel for what, what's going on there. The prosecutor must have been worried because as soon as I stood up to speak, he tried to interrupt my flow. But I learned from the jurgas that you do not concede ground. I had two translators so that when one got tired, the other could sub in. Every time the prosecutor raised an objection, I yelled at him. You need to sit down. I raised my voice and moved towards him. You do not have anything to say. And that's what he did. He sat the hell down. It was at odds with everything I'd learned as a lawyer in the U.S., but I had to stick with what I'd learned in Afghanistan. I had to put away all my fears about coming off as rude or emotional and just fight from the heart like the Afghans did. I had also been studying the Holy Quran. The prosecutor's eyes nearly popped out when he heard me quoting from it. Doesn't the Holy Quran say that a man has a right to face his accuser? I asked the court. All three judges nodded. I had learned that this was a central tenet of Islamic law. Well, in that case, where is a person that accuses this man of paying a bribe? I didn't know where he was, but I knew there was no way in hell that he was going to be in court saying, yeah, I'm the guy who took the bribe. So if the accuser is not here, I continued, then what charge is it that my client is facing today? The judges conferred and asked the prosecutor to produce his witness. He fluffed for a minute until the judges lost their patience. The prosecutor had until tomorrow to produce their witness. Until then, the court was adjourned. I went home that night full of confidence. I not only won the battle, but I was sure I was going to win the war too. The following day, we filed back into the courtroom. The witness was still nowhere to be seen. Both sides made their final arguments, but without their witness, the prosecution's case now seemed thin. The court took less than an hour to deliberate before Bill and I were back to hear his verdict. Not guilty. Those were the two little words we'd been working all these months to hear. Two words that changed everything for Bill Shaw and for me. So he finally got the minimum sentence, <laughs> which, finally, is yeah. guilty, <laughs> which is not minimum, guilty. Which is not guilty. Minimum equals not guilty. Uh, all right, that's great. Well, look, we're going to, um, listeners, we're going to take a little uh, break here. When we come back, we're going to, uh, we got another couple of cases we're going to talk about from the book Lawless. We're going to talk about what it's like to be a lawyer uh, in a foreign country, maybe a little bit about the writing life uh, and what it takes to put a book together while you're flying around being an international lawyer. So please stay with us. Hey, listeners, just want to take a moment here to uh, say thanks for listening to the podcast. I uh, really appreciate uh, the fact that uh, you're taking taking some of your valuable time to share this moment with us. Uh, we we love helping authors give voice to the written words, but without uh, you, the listener, uh, we're just uh, we're just talking into thin air. So, uh, again, thanks much for listening. And if you'd like to keep up with what we're doing on the show here, I'd encourage you to uh, sign up for our email list. I've got uh, I got some help with that uh, newsletter that we do. It's uh, comes out. We don't we don't try to spam you. That that takes too much time and money, and we just don't want to mess with that. So we just try to keep you updated on. What's going on with the show and uh, what's coming up and uh, anything of interest uh, that's happening. So, yeah, again, just uh, just want to say thanks. And uh, I've really enjoyed this uh, interview with 
Kimberly Motley, and there's a lot more, uh, lot more good stuff here to come in the next few minutes. So without, uh, without anything further, uh, except to say I'm grateful for your presence, uh, let's get back to the interview with Kimberly Motley. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Kimberly Motley. She's the author of Lawless. She's also an international lawyer and former Mrs. Wisconsin, and uh, she's all over the place, it seems. But uh, one of the places she spent a lot of time in uh, many years is Afghanistan. That's where she still has uh, her legal law practice. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit now about what it's like to be a lawyer in a foreign country. Um, So, Kimberly, you told me that learning the law was the easy part in being a lawyer in Afghanistan because unlike uh, our system where we have common law, a lot of the laws are codified. You can go find them. You can you know, create a cheat sheet, remember, whatever. So what was the hard part in terms of becoming a lawyer in Afghanistan? I'll say that one thing about Afghanistan is I've learned it's a place where often unwritten, unwritten procedures trump written laws. And so what I mean by that is even though the law may say everyone is entitled to have, for instance, an attorney represent them in a criminal court, procedurally, it's been done for years and years that people don't have legal representation, and that's fine. And so I've seen people being tried in absentia where they're not physically in court, or I've seen where people you know, don't have an attorney like the taxi driver, and they still go proceed with court. And so that's sort of hard to overcome in terms of understanding where the procedure trumps written laws. And also what's really hard and also a challenge is understanding the cultural nuances because that plays such a huge role for practicing law in Afghanistan is understanding the culture and understanding Islamic law and understanding the different tribal issues um, that go into that. And so that's always a challenge. And it's not really like there's a handbook for that, like like the lawyer's handbook, right? I mean, it's something right. if you if you grew up in the country, you would know it. So you had to study the Quran. Um, how much of the Quran have you read? I mean, is there because um, they use it? It's not, there's no separation of church and state, right? I mean, it's part of the part of the proceeding, right? Right. You know, I I don't like page turn. I'm not. I'm by no means an Islamic law expert. You know, right. I researched the the Holy Quran and I talked to different religious leaders. So I've I've read, you know, quite a bit of it. I don't know how much exactly I've read, but you know, I've read Eno- enough, enough enough to tell the prosecutor to sit down. He doesn't know anything. It's time for you to talk, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about the dangers just a minute because you know when I went to my law practice in Uptown Charlotte. I didn't need a bodyguard. I didn't need a translator. You're doing all this um, and you're driving around through streets. And there's some scenes in the book where you drive on your own. You don't even take someone with you. Probably not the smartest move, perhaps, but you needed to get out and you needed to go. And you went to the prisons and there were some times in the prisons, maybe you didn't feel as comfortable. And I think somebody came through. So what, what about danger? How did you deal with that emotionally? And what did you do to protect yourself? Well, you know, In my first year in Afghanistan, when I was with that program, that's when I had security guards. Um, Within the last 11 years, I haven't had any. So I've mostly operated in Afghanistan without a security guy or girl there with a gun. And frankly, I find that's better for me to not have that person there. I think that person makes me more vulnerable in a lot of ways being there because it brings more attention to me as opposed to me sort of moving in the community on my own. You know, I just try to, that's where my street sense kicks in. You know, I try to be very mindful of where I go. I try to be mindful of who I 
let know where I'm going. You know, I drive because I think it's important for me to, I also have a driver, you know, when I need to, I drive because it's important for me to understand the streets. Frankly, I have a motorcycle because it's important for me to understand all modes of transportation in case something happens and I can kick somebody off their motorcycle and take it if I have to, you know what I mean? And so I think it's just important to just trust your instincts. Um, that's where sort of the Milwaukee growing yeah. up in the projects helps yeah. uh, sort of kicks in for me. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the cases that you handled before we have another read here from one of those cases. Um, we were going to read uh, about Gulnaz, but because we've got other things we've been talking about, we're not going to have time for the reading, but let's talk about it because this is a young girl. She is um, 16 years old. She is raped. Um, I don't know, was it by her uncle or somebody in the family? And then she has to spend, her cousin, spends 12 years in prison for something called adultery by force. So she committed, she committed this act in the eyes of the Afghan law, even though she was raped. Can you talk about that power structure and what goes on in in those situations? Well, it's no secret that Afghanistan is a very misogynistic culture and it's very male-dominated. And so, unfortunately, Gulnaz was a victim of that. And she was a, a teenage girl who was raped by her cousin, who was nearly 40 years, I think he was 40-something years old. And she went to the doctor with her mother because she was feeling sick, and the doctor told her that she was pregnant. And he's the one that turned her over to the police, even though there's supposed to be doctor-patient confidentiality. So based on that, she was charged with adultery by force, and she was put in prison. And she was she went to first court. And basically, they gave her a 12-year prison sentence, but said that they would consider not giving her that sentence if she would become the second wife to her cousin who raped her, which she refused at that point in time. And so at that point in time, I had seen many women who were in prison for being rape victims and being charged with adultery, even though legally speaking, again, this is where the culture, unwritten culture trumps law, the written law says that a adulterer, a person that commits adultery, is a person that willingly enters into a relationship with someone. But I was meeting women that were in prison as rape victims. I was meeting women that were in prison that were in a room alone with a man that they weren't related to and being charged with adultery. And there was no touching. So, you know, I was reading from the book here, you said it's worth noting that Afghanistan women are rarely viewed as victims of rape. Uh, it couldn't have been the man's fault. Uh, but I guess, you know, she's been charged with something called adultery by force. What happens to the to the man who's committing adultery in that situation? Well, in Gulnaz's situation, because we did raise a lot of attention to her case, he was actually charged and convicted also of adultery by force, which was rare for a man to be charged with that. Usually the men, they don't get anything. And so because there was so much attention on her case, the government, in my opinion, felt compelled to also charge him with adultery. And so he was also in prison, but he was given a much lighter sentence than she was. And the way that he was sort of told why his sentence was, I think he received like a five-year sentence, why his sentence was less and how he could get out is if Gulnaz would agree to marry him. So essentially he was told that the only reason you're in is because it's all her fault. And if she just agreed to marry you, then you can get out. Yeah. And one of the things that you pointed out was that uh, although you'd had some success already in the system, this was uh, the first Afghan 
that you had represented, which also was unprecedented uh, in that country. And you actually were able to pull off uh, getting her out of prison. And yet this case had a bit of a turn at the end, which kind of struck you at the heart as well, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just wasn't sure how it, me representing like Bill Shaw, other foreigners that were locked up in Afghanistan was one thing, but representing Afghans, I wasn't sure how that would be perceived because it's so much within their culture to allow women to be railroaded within the system for these ridiculous charges. But again, it was one of those situations where I felt compelled to get involved. And so I decided to represent her. And thankfully, um, we were able to go to the Supreme Court. She was given a three-year sentence then. She had spent about two and a half years at that point in time. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, she should not be forced to marry her attacker. But that still wasn't good enough. And so ultimately, I applied for or I submitted a pardon application to then President Karzai on her behalf. And she was given that pardon. She was the first woman ever to be given a pardon by any president president for a moral crimes case, which was a huge victory. And it wasn't just a huge victory for Gulnaz, but it was a huge victory for women in Afghanistan, because also because of Gulnaz, he issued a presidential decree where he essentially outlawed running away as a crime. Often women would leave their house, and if a man didn't know they, what they were, where they were going, they could be charged and convicted of running away um, and put in prison, and many women were. And so that was decriminalized. And also because of Gulnaz, there was a unit within the attorney general's office where women could go and report if they were victims of some type of crime. That was completely not being used, but because of Gulnaz, women started going to that unit. And so... She did a lot for women's rights in Afghanistan that I think a lot of women just do not understand or realize. But the, but the, but the twist here, and just to, to play this out, you were able to go back before the Supreme Court and convince them that uh, this adultery by force idea was uh, ridiculous because what had she done by force right. to, to be raped herself being a victim? And they ended up agreeing, but uh, they said, yeah, okay, well, we're going to reduce her eight-year sentence to three years. So they didn't get her out, which forced you to then try to go this other route. And then through all of this, you, through all these steps, you achieve um, a result. She's now out of prison, and yet she's still being ostracized by her family, who still sees it, in a sense, as her fault. They shame the family, and the only way to, you know, eliminate that shame is for her to marry her attacker and in the end, what happened? In the end, um, she ultimately did get out of prison because of the pre- presidential pardon. But years after that, she did marry the attacker. And that was thanks to the Afghan Ministry of Women's Affairs um, who got that catastrophe together. Um, because often people think that women in Afghanistan are pro-women's rights, but a lot of women can be worse than other women. And so they were pressuring Gulnaz to marry her attacker, which she ultimately agreed to do that. And I was not aware of that. I was not part of that, of course. Um, And it was very disappointing. And part of me as a lawyer, I felt like all the work that I'd done had been flushed down the drain. Mm -hmm. You know, when Gulnaz's case was very, very big in the international press, there were many countries that were reaching out to her and saying that they wanted to give her asylum. And Gulnaz 
you know, I give her credit. She didn't want to do that. She wanted to first reconcile things between her brother and her mother. Her brother wanted to kill her for having had the audacity of being raped and bringing shame to their family, as he said. And her mother really wasn't speaking to her at the time. And so she wanted to reconcile that relationship before she could even think about going to a different country. And frankly, that was very scary for her. As a teenage girl that couldn't even read and write Dari, you know, for her to even fathom going to another country and being completely on her own was something that she was not prepared for. And so she didn't want to go to those other countries. She was able to reconcile with her family. And one way that in her eyes, she reconciled was by marrying her cousin and becoming his second wife. And so for me, I didn't like what happened, obviously, but I had to realize that I'm her lawyer. I'm not her life coach. And it's her decision, period. And that has been hard for me to understand how culturally that can still happen. But it's very difficult. I also recognize that it's very difficult for any single mother with a kid to be in Afghanistan alone. That's extremely difficult and frankly, extremely rare. And Gulnaz did not have the support that she needed. Yeah, so very emotional case uh, for you. In fact, uh, you know, I want to talk now about a, a case uh, before we, we go to something called a JIRGA, J-I-R-G-A. You mentioned it earlier. We're going to talk about it in, in the context of your next read. But before that, uh, you represented a, um, a client named Rob. Um, this is probably one of the longest from start to finish that you had to deal with and uh, difficult. Uh, again, it's another case where somebody has not committed a wrong and you find out about it and you're like perplexed. Why is this person in his case uh, on death row? He's, he, he's been given the death penalty. Can, can you tell us a little bit about Rob and how long that uh, ordeal took to get him from yeah. death row to walking the streets again? Yeah. Um, Rob was a former Australian soldier. And so basically he had, he was working in Afghanistan as a security guy and his company that he worked for would provide the security for the different truck convoys that would take mail to the different uh, international military installations and U.S. military installations throughout Afghanistan. And so there was one night when he had actually quit from his company that day that there was a 15-car convoy of trucks that were taking mail from Kabul to the southern part of Afghanistan. And so typically what they do is they transport the mail at night because that's when insurgents are sleeping and there is a lesser chance of them running into unfriendly fire. And so they transport, and Rob was not part of that convoy. So long story short, about an hour after driving, the convoy was unexpectedly stopped by one of the Afghan security guys that was also in charge of the convoy in the middle of nowhere. And there's no streetlights in these rural parts. It's very scary. You don't want to stop a convoy because maybe one of the trucks won't start back up. So you, you really need to keep going. And so this guy... Um, he just stopped the convoy for no apparent reason. And there were about three Americans that were part of the convoy, but they didn't speak the language, which frankly, it was also silly that they were on in this convoy, don't speak the language. So the, there was a big communication barrier. And so 
because they were getting nervous, and this was about midnight, they then radioed to headquarters back in Kabul and said, you know, Karim has stopped the convoy. We don't know why, but he stopped it, and we really need to get going. So Rob jumped in a car with his translator, and they drove to the convoy, and they arrived there about a little after 1 a.m., and sure enough, the convoy was stopped. And any time somebody would approach Karim and say, why are we stopping? We need to go. He would take his gun out and wave it in people's faces. And so Rob came and he, again, he also asked him, why are you stopping the convoy? Karim put his gun in Rob's face. Rob pulled his gun out and he shot and killed Karim. And so they, uh, the people, they, they took Karim's body and they put it in back of one of the trucks. And so they, as they were like sort of putting mail over his body while it was in the back of this trunk, there was a bunch of heroin that was under the mail that no one realized was there. While they were doing that, there was about 10 to 15 Afghan guys that appeared out of nowhere. And this is in the desert, out the blue, and saw these convoys. So what we believe happened is that these guys, Karim was setting the convoy up to be robbed, and these guys were late getting there. And so that's what he was sort of waiting for. So thankfully, those guys didn't engage in a fight and they left immediately. And so Rob and the convoy then headed down um, back to where the military installation was. About 30 minutes out from the military installation, they didn't think it'd be a great idea to show up with you know a whole bunch of kilos of heroin. And so Rob instructed the Afghans to put the heroin in the car that he drove up and to burn the car with the heroin inside. And so while they were doing that, Rob was sort of talking to the Americans that are part of the convoy. And ultimately he said, okay, let's go. And he looked back in the truck and saw that the body was gone. And he said, where's the body at? And they pointed to the car that was burning with the heroin. You know, so I don't know if it's a loss in translation thing. And so they then headed back down to the military base. The Americans flew from the military base out of the country. Rob came to Kabul and decided to fly out from Kabul. And while he was at the airport, nearly on the airplane, he was arrested and then charged with murder. Give us the Reader's Digest version of how you got him out. His company was being corrupt. I mean, the first, second, and third court, he's the only foreigner that's been sentenced to death. And so I represented him for about three weeks right before he went to the second court. And they wanted to pay bribes. And I don't engage in corruption. I don't pay bribes. So that's why I quit representing him. And so ultimately, after his sentence was converted to a life sentence, I represented him. And uh, I appealed to get a pardon for his on his behalf to the president. But the president said that he doesn't qualify. We need to create a law that would allow for them to get a pardon and get that law passed through parliament. So short, short version is we created law, we got it passed through the two Afghan parliaments, um, and then he was given a pardon. It took a while. Wow. It took a while. Yeah, well, good work there. That's uh, an amazing case. Right, let's talk about Jirga a second. Uh, what is a Jirga? A Jirga is part of Afghanistan's informal justice system. So it's like what we would term like mediation and arbitration. So it's like if there's a conflict, then you have the people that are involved in the conflict and they choose religious elders and village leaders to come in to listen to the dispute and decide how best to resolve that dispute. And that meeting is called a Jirga. 
Sounds a little bit like mediation in our culture, in right, our exactly. legal system. Yeah, getting everybody together, try to work it out. So for this Jerga read, you're going to do uh, just to set it up. We've got uh, we got this camp. We've got a situation that develops with the father um, of a daughter. He gets in debt, can't pay his debt, and somehow the daughter is used as chattel to satisfy. Tell us just briefly a little setup for the Jerga. Okay, so basically Taj Muhammad is the father, and he owes a $2,500 debt to a neighbor. He can't pay it, and so the neighbor insists that they call a Jerga together. Like most refugees, Taj had only ever worked menial farming jobs, but in the camp where they had no land, these skills were useless. So he went to look for work as an unskilled laborer. Every morning he woke up at the crack of dawn to go in search of whatever paid work he could find that day. When the work was steady, he could make around $50 a month. But work was scarce, especially during the winter months, and the jobs got fewer and farther between. Most days, he would come home empty-handed. The camp is a dirty, dusty, open block located in a very dangerous part of the city. It's filled with people who fled rural areas to escape the fighting between the government and the Taliban, or the IS-led insurgents. As more internally displaced Afghans came in, it became even harder for men like Taj to find jobs. To make matters worse, insurgents hung around looking to recruit desperate refugees. It's not a good place for anyone to grow up. It's not a good place for anyone to live. During one winter, Taj's wife felt ill and was hospitalized. At the same time, their three-year-old son froze to death. Desperate, Taj borrowed $2,500 from a neighbor to pay for his wife's medical bills and other family expenses like firewood and food. He borrowed the money in good faith, promising to pay it back. But when his son died, he fell behind on his payments and slid deeper into debt. Then the neighbor demanded the money back. When Taj explained that he couldn't pay back the loan, the neighbor insisted that the tribal elders intervene and a jerk was called. The elders and religious leaders decided that the best way to satisfy the debt was for Taj to marry off his six-year-old daughter, Nagma, to the neighbor's 21-year-old son. We've got a, a second read here that uh, deals with uh, the first sticking point uh, of that uh, jerga. The first sticking point was that from the point of view of those who participated in the jerga, the resolution was still a good one. It may have shocked the world, but as far as they were concerned, it solved the problem. However, in order for me to solve this problem, a second jerga had to be called, but we also needed the neighbor, his son, the village elders, and the religious leaders to agree to take part. We needed to convince everyone to look again at potential solutions that meant Nagma didn't have to be sold. The man who intended to marry the six-year-old had already started showing up at Nagma's house to instruct the family in how he wanted her to be raised in preparation for when she was to be turned over to him in a few weeks' time. First, he told her family that he didn't want her going to school. It was a waste of her time, he said, and as she certainly would not go to school when they were married. Then he warned them that she better start learning to cook and clean, that his new little slave bride better learn to make herself useful. He didn't exactly ingratiate himself with his prospective in-laws. After hearing all of that, I was looking forward to meeting him. Yeah, after hearing all that, you were looking forward to being a disruptor, right? Right. <laughs> Get it, getting in there. And uh, so that that's already, that kind of sets up the, the the scene for this, for what you end up doing. And what you ended up doing is pulling them together. You had a jerga um, 
you actually were able to convince them to a solution that didn't involve selling a little girl to uh, to take care of a debt. And you actually shamed the 21-year-old during that. I think you said, what's wrong with you? He looked surprised. And you shouldn't buy little girls. Can't you get a wife your own age? And at that, the elder started laughing. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. So, you used, again, you're using some of the, uh, you know, your wits and your understanding of the culture to try to get a result. All right, let's do this. Let's talk um, writing life for just a minute, and then we have one final read. You, um, you're traveling all over the world. You've got this uh, mobile law practice. You, you parachute in for several weeks, and you try a case. Did you have a routine for writing this book? I mean, was it mostly on planes and trains, or how did you go about that? It was. It was mostly on planes and airports. I had writers that helped me write this book, and the vast majority of the time we were meeting at different airport terminals or, or in the airport lobby. Um, most of this book, uh, I was also on Skype in Afghanistan writing it. I felt like when I wasn't at an airport it was easier for me to get in a frame of reference of writing this book when I was in Afghanistan. So the vast majority of this book was written in Afghanistan because it's, it's harder to be honest. When I come to North Carolina, Charlotte, I just don't want to be there in mm. Afghanistan. I want to be here, you know? Mm. And so I, it was really important for me to be in country to write a lot of this book. And, and you said it's important to be there. Um, a lot of what you write about, is emotional. It has memories that are probably attached to the landscape that, that you're in. Um, and in terms of, you know, writing with a team, um, can you talk about that a minute? How did y'all work that out? Because your, your voice appears in the book, you're writing some, you're, but you're working with other writers who are helping you tell your story. How did y'all pull that together and how did it work in terms of the logistics? You know, it felt like my writers are more like therapists than writers, to be honest. <laughs> and I mean, they were amazing. You know, um, Dunstan Priel and um, Connor Powell, they both helped me write this book. And basically, you know, I'm a trial attorney. So I mm -hmm. routinely, as you are a trial attorney, you're used to telling other people's stories. You know what I mean? And say, this oh. happened and my client did this. And so mm -hmm. that was a real problem for me because I was telling the logistics of cases and what happened. Right. And so they kept talking to me about, no, we we have to hear what you were thinking, what you were going through. Right. So, I mean, essentially, to be honest, I've actually written like three books in terms of the first two books, were, they're all based from this book, you know, and like mm. the first book was very like formatic. This is what happened. Right. And between them and also my, um, my agent, they're like, you have to get your personality into this. Cause when you tell us the stories, that's what you want to hear. And so that was a real process and they helped to pull it out of me to the point where both my writers actually came to Afghanistan. And I was mm -hmm. like, you have to be here. And so it ended up being that I would just talk into recording and literally they would just write what I said. It, it's almost like this book was dictated and then they would send it back to me and then I would put my edits and whatnot into it. Um, so that's how the process went. And once we sort of got the hang of that, it literally took about four months, four months to write the book. Yeah. I mean, that, that is true. I mean, I've, I've told people it's said it on several episodes that I've had to teach myself 
how not to write like a lawyer when I write <laughs> write fiction. Because, you know, we're used to writing in a linear fashion, getting the facts in there. But it's also more about uh, character. It's also about, uh, you know, as you said, how people are feeling in the moment. I mean, if you just tell the story, you don't tell necessarily how you were, for example, devastated when Golnaz made her decision and how it affected you and, you know, how you became a disruptor. So, yes, yeah, good. So do you have any advice for anyone who's you know busy like you were, who's got a great story to tell about how to work with a team of writers to tell their story? Is there, you know, from your own experience? Well, I think that you really have to let go, you know, and I think it, the, for me, the method of me talking into recorder that really helped me to get it out there. Because in my first couple of drafts, you know, as a lawyer, also as a professional person, you don't want to bring in your personal life at all. And so in my first drafts of writing this book, there was one sentence that I put where I said, I have three kids. Like, that's the only <laughs> mention of my family that I gave in the whole book. And they were right. like, do you realize that you only and because I'm so used to, like, protecting that and not mm-hmm. wanting that out there? Because as a professional, you know, I always think about, too, like, this may affect my business. But ultimately, I had to let all that go. And, you know, and I recommend that for those that are writing, you have to let it go. Like you either want to write a book about yourself, if it's a memoir, then write a memoir about yourself. Like do it. Mm, If that makes sense. It it, it does make sense because um, what we didn't cover in the book, and I hope people will pick up the book and read it because it's a fascinating read. You do set the framework, uh, the sort of the background, the foundation for what you end up doing later by talking about your experiences in Milwaukee. You've got a couple of cases that you handle there as a public defender. You talk about going back with your husband who was shot at one point in time, and you had to get involved to make sure that the system moved forward as it should have because they weren't necessarily treating you know, the shooting of a black man perhaps like they might have treated the shooting of someone else, and you had to step in and kind of – so all of that um, tells us a little bit more about Kimberly than just the higher-level look at you know, this high-flying lawyer who comes in to, to, to resolve these. In other words, you're a human being, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and probably wouldn't have learned about Mrs. Wisconsin if we hadn't uh, had those writers telling you, no, tell your story, tell your whole story, nothing yeah. but the whole story, right? <laughs> yeah, they uh, made me put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so how has this book opened up opportunities uh, for you um, beyond maybe what you thought it might uh, before you wrote it? I mean, what I've realized with this book is this is really not just my story, but it really is a historical account of the legal system in Afghanistan over the last 12 years. And I've been part of that. So I think that has been really interesting to be able to be now sort of this authority figure on sort of the legal Mm -hmm. progression in Afghanistan. Um, I'm currently sheltering, um, but I'm supposed to be on book tour now. That's not happening. So um, I'm thankful to be talking to you and your podcast, um, because I do think this is an important read. Um, You know, it it was very therapeutic for me, I think, just generally speaking. Um, You don't realize what you go through till you write it down. And I didn't realize everything that sort of I did really until I read it out loud, because I the ebook will be out next month, I believe, in May. Mm. Mm-hmm. And just hearing me tell my own stories has been really, really interesting. 
Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that this is not going to be the last book that I write. I mean, I have so many stories, so many cases to tell, and I hope that it somehow pushes the needle on legal representation internationally. And I hope that inspires other people to get involved. Not necessarily that everyone needs to be a lawyer, but just get involved in some of these issues that I've outlined in the book through the cases that I've represented. Yeah, so this is good. So this episode, which we're recording in April, will come out probably sometime in the middle of July. And by then you'll have your uh, audio book out uh, as well. So are you reading that yourself? Are you? Did you? Yes. Oh, good. So we're going to hear your voice on that. All right. So we can get you can get the book, then get the audiobook. Um, and when do when do the disruptors hit the, you know, newsstand here? You know, I don't know. I'm trying to find funding for it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so because I really want this to be in the mainstream of comic book world. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I want it to be out sooner rather than later because I have so many stories that I've already written yeah. for this. Um, so that's a work in progress. Okay, well, I look forward to see when when the disruptor comes out. Let me know because I want to read the first uh, <laughs> the okay. first disruptor there. Uh, all right, so we got one final read here. It's it, it's uh, out of the chapter called Motley's Law. Um, it speaks to your philosophy uh, as a lawyer. Um, it's kind of a good way to bring this episode to a close. So, if you don't mind, could you read that section for us? As a lawyer, I try to understand the beat of the court. As I mentioned, there is a huge creative aspect to being an effective litigator. It requires understanding the court's genre. Some courts prefer prefer house music. Some prefer hip-hop. Other courts prefer rap. It is my job to understand what the court wants to rock to on any particular day and drop the right track that flows. When I go to court, I want the judges to walk in my client's shoes. I want them to feel what I'm saying in their souls, like they're listening to Adele, or Marvin Gaye. When I go to court, I want to use the laws in the most effective way possible and give them something to dance to, give them a bit of law for their soul. That's being a DJ in law. When I took on the cases of Irene, Bevan, and Rob, I had to create a brand new genre of music. I used Islamic law and mixed it with some of the obscure Afghan traditions to reduce their sentences and ultimately secure their releases. That's the creativity of what I love about being a lawyer law often provides another way. The way I practice law is about improvising, trusting my instincts, and understanding my audience. It's not about being prideful or selfish, but about setting realistic expectations while also taking calculated risks. To achieve that, I have to be honest about my mistakes, accept them, and learn from them. It's about fighting. Fighting intelligently, strategically, and most importantly, effectively. It's about being true to yourself, true to your clients, and true to your audience. Trial and error. That's what has worked for me in courtrooms from Milwaukee to Kabul. So, Kimberly, I like the way that you, um, you you use the metaphor of music to describe how you need to present a case uh, in court. Uh, you, we talked, we said you like to be a DJ. How long have you been DJing, by the way? I've been DJing since high school, to be honest, like okay. off and on. I'm not like, you know, Steve yeah. Aoki, but yeah. <laughs> but, you, but you enjoy it. Yeah. But, but it's true. It's true what you say here, you know, the the presentations. And, and, and I've thought about this a lot as Laurie actually taught a, um, a, a continuing legal education course recently on what trial lawyers and podcasters can teach each other about uh, telling their stories, because sometimes trial lawyers will get, 
too hung up on the facts and forget that they really are having to tell a story, right? Right. And to tell a story, you got to personalize it because judges are humans too, and they want to be in juries and they want to be entertained and they want to be. So just the facts, ma'am, is not necessarily it. And you hit it, you hit it right here. Um, and creativity too. Lawyers uh, can be creative. And I think the things that I enjoy the most sounds like you too, is when you're actually in the courtroom, all that stuff beforehand and, you know, all the discovery and all the electronics, that's no, I don't, not that, but being in the setting. And as you said, fighting and now being a disruptor, right. Being a, right. one of those disruptors is going to, how does your, how does your uh, child uh, soul? You said, has he like being a, a disruptor in your comic book series? He like, I mean, they're all in it. All my kids, but yeah, he yeah. likes it, but he, well, he doesn't like his superpower. He's like, oh, uh. I don't like that. I want to fly. <laughs> Wants <laughs> to fly, okay. right? Well, you know, maybe this can be one of those things where he evolves, his superpowers evolve, and he can become add that to the list. Well, Kimberly, look, we could talk all day. I really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, information. Listeners is going to be in the show notes about Kimberly. We got some great photographs. We're going to put in there too about her time and uh, some of them from Afghanistan. The book has even more when you pick it up. Some color photos in the middle of the book, which are really nice. So. Uh, Kimberly, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.